our builder clients, home builder clients and home developer clients, they were selling out months in advance, basically paper lots that were already going under contract. And I know several people in my circle of friends that had or have one of those paper lots under contract and they didn't know the final price yet because the builder couldn't set the price until he knew what his materials would be six months down the road. They hadn't been to the design center yet to pick their finishes, but there was such demand that they felt like if they didn't get their name on the list, they weren't going to get a new build home. For the most part, that is dried up. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes, which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives, and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I am Jeanette Robinson, Director of Investor Relations with Blue Lake Capital. And today our guest is Will Schneer. And Will is, he's got an incredible story, which actually I think is very inspiring, very much the American dream. So Will was previously the founder of Big Red Dog Engineering, which he was able to have successfully acquired by WGI in 2019. So congratulations, Will, for doing something that many entrepreneurs, you know, hope and dream of being able to accomplish. Tremendous kudos. And now, since the acquisition, Will is now the chief marketing officer for WGI. Prior to this, he worked as a civil engineer for Jacobs, which especially those of you from Texas should be very familiar with. And he has his BS in civil engineering from Purdue and is actually a professional engineer in 33 states, which is extremely impressive. It is not easy to get your PE. So for those of you that don't quite understand the engineering terms and terminologies, that's a big deal. In addition to that, though, his biggest you know, accomplishment is that he is married with two children, a 15-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son, and they live in Austin, Texas. And I have to say my daughter also lives in Austin. So hi, Hannah and Will, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, we're happy you're here also. Now, I actually, as you know, relocated myself from Texas to Boston almost a year ago. So I'm missing Texas, but I'm sure you can help me miss it less by sharing with our listeners what's the toasty temperature out there today. It's a cool 103 degrees and very humid, and it hasn't rained in about three months as far as I know. Wow. It's dry and dusty. (laughs) Wow. I did not realize that it hadn't rained for so long. My goodness. That definitely makes it hot. Hot, hot, hot. Well, 
good luck. I just got to keep cool, right? That's right. That's right. The tables will turn in a few months and you'll be freezing and we'll be in football weather. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Will, before we kind of jump into, um, you know, getting into talking about the asset and the process and strategy like we like to do on the show, do you want to just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background when it comes to both engineering, your involvement with real estate, you know, also as an investor, you know, it's a nice blend of all of that. Sure, sure. I have been a professional engineer for over 15 years. And about 14 years ago, myself and a couple partners started Big Red Dog Engineering. Funny name, but turned out to be a quite a serious venture. We started in Austin, Texas in 2009 with no clients and no money, right at the, you know, if you look at the Dow Jones chart, May of 09 was the bottom of that particular recession. I, I know another one started just recently, but no clients and no money. And in eight years, we built it up to almost $20 million in annual revenue and five offices in Texas and about 120 professionals working for us. And we sold that firm in 2019 to WGI. And we've, we've been off to the races ever since with WGI. You know, WGI now is a $100 million firm. We've got 20 plus offices around the nation, headquartered in West Palm Beach, Florida, and our our largest markets are Florida and Texas, which is fortuitous for us as as those are two great growth markets right now. And my background as a professional is really in land development consulting and development permitting, particularly in the Austin office. And that's how I cut my teeth and how I made my name in this profession and ultimately parlayed that into my current role as chief marketing officer for WGI, which was the marketing and the sales and the business development was always my favorite part of the business, more so than the design, engineering design part of the business. But you can't just jump into the the sales side without knowing the do side first. So that's where I am today. And yeah, that's hopefully where I'll be for a long time to come. Nice. Very, very nice. Like I said earlier, I mean, congratulations. It's, it's definitely significant. And it sounds like the company, you know, is now doing incredible. It sounds like it was a great merger, if you almost will. You know, I know it was technically acquired, but, you know, basically it sounds like the two of you have complemented each other really well. And just how exciting to see that kind of growth. That's really neat. So I think that the listeners will be very interested to know what is happening, you know, in the development side of the world. You know, there's been a lot of challenges, a lot of things have shifted, you know, so first of all, do you want to kind of touch on the assets? What type of, you know, trends have you seen kind of across the asset classes from a development standpoint? You know, before we started recording, we talked about kind of what it was like before COVID, during COVID, and then, you know, even in the last 40 days, you know, you've seen a significant shift. So would you like to tell the listeners about that? Sure, absolutely. My career has been in in Austin, Texas, in the Austin market. Austin has been one of the fastest growing cities, one of the cities with the you know, highest number of inbound migration coming from other places in the country. And the market was really rocking and rolling up until really COVID happened, spring of 2020. And we were doing primarily in the Austin office, a whole lot of urban infill, high density development. And you hear the, the term, the Texas wrap, you know, the four to five story apartment wrapped around a structural parking garage with 
typically a pool on top of the garage, which was not always the easiest thing to design, but we were doing a whole lot of that product type. We were doing a half a dozen to a dozen skyscraper style towers in downtown Austin. And this was largely the same in terms of the urban infill component in the, the Houston market, the Dallas market, the San Antonio market. And when COVID happened, there was this fear of living in a high density house in an urban area. People all of a sudden wanted to scatter out to the suburbs. You know, they all wanted a yard and they wanted an office at home so they could work at home. And so, you know, by the summer of 2020, it was clear that the real estate market as we knew it had shifted, but not gone away at all. In fact, it actually got stronger. And if, if you tracked our backlog as a company over that time, the backlog actually increased from the summer of 20 through today, which I did not expect, you know, as quickly as the economy shut down in March and April of 20. But the product type really shifted. We went from doing urban infill work to that next ring of suburban development, you know, subdivisions out on the on the highways. Distribution centers at that time became big business, whether they were for online booksellers out of Seattle, Washington, or big grocery names that needed to do distribution work. You know, obviously their business exploded. And we started, you know, an interesting product type we started doing at that time was dark stores or dark kitchens, which Sounds like, you know, a building that you build and mothball until you have a tenant. But what it really means is it's a building that you build, but the public's not welcome to. But it's it's very much operating. And so when we say dark kitchen product or a dark grocery store product, those would be distribution points for your home delivery services, for your Grubhubs, your Uber Eats, where, you know, we might have a 50,000 or 100,000 square foot floor plate as a commercial kitchen. And there could be 10 to 20 restaurants operating out of there only or exclusively for at-home delivery of their meals. Wow. And groceries, there's a particular Texas grocer that was doing something very similar, you know, for home grocery delivery. So it was basically a grocery warehouse where the delivery drivers would come pick up the orders and bring them to folks' homes. And that really continued through 2021 in earnest. And just recently, 2022, we started picking up the urban infill development again. People were moving back into the urban core. And, you know, you started to see the trend of further and further out, more and more land start to reverse itself back into its traditional mode. And even more recently, as you mentioned, in the last 30 or 40 days, we've seen that for sale single family home product start to be retooled or reconfigured while it's on the drawing board, sometimes while part of the product is on the ground or while the spine infrastructure is already on the ground. We've had at least three projects that I can think of, not all in central Texas, but across the firm that it was going to be a several hundred home for sale subdivision be retooled into a several hundred home for rent subdivision, simply as a function of, of the economy and of meeting the user end users of those products where they are. You know, when interest rates are 2.7%, a lot more people can qualify for that home out in the suburbs. When they're 6%, not many can qualify. And the rental equation starts to look stronger for those folks. So we're starting to see a whole lot more rental product just in the last 30 to 40 days. Again, you know, work not necessarily stopping, 
but pivoting to meet the end users where they are. Uh, Very interesting. Very interesting. And actually, that's a great segue to the next portion of our interview here, which is we're talking about the process, right? So how are people pivoting and what steps does that basically entail for people to assess? Okay, market conditions have completely shifted. You know, what we're seeing as far as, you know, in the market from consumers is no longer the same thing as what it was just a few months ago. What have you been observing or even, you know, consulting with or participating in and essentially the process to pivot? I'd say as recently as four months ago, four to six months ago, if there was a house for sale that was an existing home, there would be people lined up 20 cars deep waiting to go into an open house and people putting offers on the house sight unseen. And now when one of those existing homes comes up for sale, there's no one lined up in front of it. And it tends to be languishing on the market, even in Austin. And I'm I'm primarily speaking for the north of $700,000 a house market. You know, if there were a house anywhere in Travis County, at least for less than half a million bucks, it's still not going to sit there very long. Mm -hmm. There's just not that many of them. And on the builder side, Our builder clients, home builder clients and home developer clients, they were selling out months in advance, basically paper lots that were already going under contract. And I know several people in my circle of friends that had or have one of those paper lots under contract and they didn't know the final price yet because the builder couldn't set the price until he knew what his materials would be six months down the road. They hadn't been to the design center yet to pick their finishes, but there was such demand that they felt like if they didn't get their name on the list, they weren't going to get a new build home. For the most part, that has dried up. A lot of our home builder clients have reported much slower traffic at their sales centers. A lot of those speculative sales contracts, open-ended really sales contracts have been terminated. And, you know, they're at the high point, high point of their development. They're They put in the spine infrastructure, which costs a whole lot of money up front, you know, the big roads, the big water lines. Perhaps they started certain pods, you know, 50 to 100 homes at a time and put in that secondary infrastructure, the narrower roads, the smaller pipes that come up the spines. And they might have four or five, six more of those pods left. And their profit really comes at, you know, pods four, five and six after they pay back that big infrastructure investment from the beginning of the project. And mm-hmm. so a lot of them are, are near or at that, I call it the high point of their infrastructure cost. And the buyers are evaporating when six months prior, it looked like they were you know, sitting on a nest full of golden eggs waiting for them to hatch because their prices, you know, they could set their prices and they, every four houses they sold in a week, they'd raise the prices, whatever their magic formula was. It might've been four, it might've been two, it might've been eight. But quickly after that, you know, we do not just the civil engineering, but the land planning, the amenity centers and things like that, you know, whether it's planning or landscape architecture or architecture, we do that at our firm. And they've started coming back in with us and and their other, you know, professional consultants and saying, you know, the market has changed on us and we need to retool and reposition ourselves. What can we do? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the answer to that is keep building the homes, but change the design of the homes to make them cheaper, you know, because you're now going to be going towards a for rent user, you know, someone who's going to come in, whether it's a them operating them as the landlord or selling them to an investor 
And that investor could be your mom and pop investor or an institutional investor that would operate them as rental units. And, you know, when you're going towards that rental category, they care less about, you know, double drywall for sound control and less about fancy finishes in the bathrooms and the kitchens and, you know, all this extravagant landscaping that might have happened. And it becomes much more about a financial proposition. You know, what's the rent going to be, you know? The school district is, in a lot of cases, equally as important for both of those users. But we've definitely seen for sale subdivisions being actively now being converted into rental subdivisions. Single family for rent is typically what we call them. We've seen more density coming in. So instead of four or 50 or 60 foot lots, we're bringing them down or creating more of a, the term we would use as detached condo lots. So rather than planning out lots and selling a lot with the home to the homeowner, they're, they're selling them the physical home, but the common area is owned by all of the, whether the homeowners or the, the for rent investors collectively, just like a condo regime. And that's to get more connections on that utility infrastructure I mentioned, to spread that cost over more units because they've lost their pricing premium on a for sale product almost overnight as interest rates have doubled and, and now gone north of doubling. You know, and, and for us as an engineering slash design firm, it matters not whether it's a for sale or for rent product. You know, what matters to us is something needs to be being built or we start to get in trouble. And, and I know today officially they confirmed that we're in the second straight quarter of a GDP decline, which is the traditional definition of a recession. But our backlog continues to increase. You know, we continue to have trouble finding enough qualified professionals to service the backlog that we do have. And we still have tremendous wage, upward wage pressure in terms of our staff. They're seeing a nine plus percent inflation rate being publicized. They're feeling a 30 plus percent inflation rate in terms of gas and food or more. And, you know, we are setting fees and doing work on projects from a year ago that we just can't justify 25 or 30% wage increases. And and so there is a real push and pull in in the labor market right now. So it's despite the fact that the GDP is decreasing, most of the other indicators that we use to operate our business are not flashing red yet. We're watching them. You know, some of them are yellow, but it could be easier to recruit people. It could be easier to retain people. Certainly could be easier to find vendors. You know, our supply chain is stretched. The builder's supply chain is clearly stretched. And we can get into that if you want to. But Yeah, and actually, that, that was exactly what I was going to touch on but, next. And I think every business owner, you know, is feeling, particularly in real estate period, whatever, you know, aspect it may be, feeling the same types of challenges, the same types of pressures, you know, across the board. But of course, supply chain is a major issue that's not going away anytime soon. So, you know, I'm very curious to know both what you and and what you've observed, you know, other companies are doing to kind of find the workaround on a lot of these challenges. Well, on the design side, you know, we have no choice but to be more efficient, to do, you know, the same amount of end design work you know, with fewer resources. And, you know, we do that with technology and tools that perhaps we weren't using previously. But what's making our job harder as design professionals is the crunch in the skilled trades markets that our developer clients and our our builders are experiencing. You know, there's a lot of rework being done because the work is not being done correctly the first time. You know, this 
60 to 65 year old who 10 years ago was 50 to 55 and running the job site and had 30 years of experience at that point running the job site and knew the pitfalls and knew how to manage the job site and had access to you know skilled trades and subcontractors. That gentleman is no longer in the workforce or is fading out of the workforce, either through age or due to COVID or other reasons. And and what's left is, you know, the 35-year-old site contractor or contractor who's, you know, seeing things for the first time, doesn't have great access to skilled trades and subcontractors because everyone's stretched thin and facing the same thing. And it makes it tougher for our developer clients to stay on schedule and stay in budget. It makes it tougher for the contractors to make a profit, you know, and stay on their schedule before they get into damages, damage models, you know, related to the schedule. And ultimately, as designers, we're called out a lot more frequently to look at something to, you know, assuage a client or contractor's concerns or change the design based on what they built, which wasn't what was in the plans to try to make it work so they don't have to rip it out and redo it. And these are real issues that in an up market, a market going up, you can keep papering over by raising the prices. But when right. when we're in the market we are today, you know, almost August 1st, those issues start to become much more serious because each one may be digging a hole deeper in terms of the pro forma. So those are very real challenges. And In the history of your career, have you ever found yourself in a position to be doing these types of things, you know, coming in and redesigning, you know, with technically an error, you know, but finding, you know, a solution beyond no. that? And so no. it's really, I mean, if we want to try to be as positive as possible, it's a season of innovation. We can, it's, in one regard, look at it like that, right? There's more demand, yes, than the market can provide under their traditional methods. So it's really making things a challenge, you know, in fall of 08, spring of 09, that was a significant real estate recession for us. But it at that time, you know, it was a recession and the market just stopped. I mean, that construction stopped. They didn't even try to finish the projects, a lot of them at that time. So there wasn't this pressure to go fix it and finish it. And in this case, you know, projects are not stopping. They're still going and have been going for two years under these conditions. And and now it's it's like the band is slowing down their song and, you know, the roller coaster is reaching the top. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because the next shoe to drop is, in this case, is usually claims, whether they're construction litigation claims or contractor owner payment claims or breach of contract type claims because someone's trying to find a pot of insurance money because the project ran into trouble. And we're not seeing that yet by any stretch, but that's the pattern these things tend to follow. So I'll be, I'll be watching that closely. But in Florida, Texas, we have more work than we know what to do with still. And even though the work type is changing, it changes rapidly. I've told you about, we went from distribution centers and dark stores and dark kitchens into subdivisions now back into infill and now converting a lot of for sale stuff whether it's infill or suburban into a for rent product you know the the financial model is still there it just may be transitioning live and in action you know in front of all of us yeah yeah very interesting and you know, I mean, everyone's been saying it. We're just in a very strange place right now. And, you know, I think that everyone is doing the same thing, which is 
We're being innovative. We are, you know, tackling one challenge as they come after the other, after the other. And we're all kind of looking at each other like, hey, you got any good ideas yet? What about you? You know, that's it's, you know, we talk internally. It's not a good economy. But it's not a bad economy. Yeah, it's just real. It's just a weird economy. And Mm -hmm. and you got to stay on your toes, which is this is the first time in 20 years of doing this that I've had these experiences. And who knows when it'll change or if it'll change. Yeah. Yeah. Huge demographic shifts. You know, the largest, most productive generation in the history of the United States is starting to retire. You know, and with that, they'll be selling their homes that they may have been sitting on for decades. They'll, they're stopped earning. They've stopped contributing in terms of the workforce, but they're still spending. They're spending down their assets. And at the same time, we lack, I don't know the correct way to, to phrase it, we lack the skilled or the experience coming up to replace right. the productivity that's retiring up the map. Right. Essentially that middle management gap, right? And a lot of millennials, you know, either have no training in these skilled trades, you know, or that no desire, frankly, to get into the middle management role, which is, you know, kind of a whole other subject I could definitely get into given my background, you know, previously being in headhunting. But, you know, it is an interesting challenge also, you know, kind of a macroeconomic challenge, if you will, you know, that we're also facing when it comes to hiring. The holes reflect, you know, the 80s savings and loan recession. It reflects the dot-com recession at 2000, 2001, and it reflects 08, 09, 2010. The people who should have been coming up in those bands left our industry, whether it's contracting or design or finance. And those gaps are clear in our org chart. You know, we go from 60-plus-year-old leaders to, you know, 40 to 50-year-old leaders to 28, 29-year-old, you know, leaders. and you can very clearly see the gaps where we got hollowed out as a profession, not just as a firm. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that that presents a really interesting kind of segue that we can take, you know, originally before we started recording, we talked about, you know, some of the challenges as far as attracting, you know, buyers and renters. But I think before we jump into that, let's talk also about the challenge of attracting talent. And what do you think are some of the more creative solutions that you're beginning to see particularly, you know, in your industry for some of these issues and these challenges? We've had the highest wage increases that I've ever seen in my career. You know, pre-2020, a good increase was 5%. And and we're, you know, we're triple that right now in terms of annual wage increases. And it's, it's hurting our margin for sure. Hurting it, you know, not insignificantly. You just can't raise your prices fast enough to keep up with the wage pressure. And so we're dealing with that. But the big thing coming out of COVID was work from home, you know, Mm -hmm. right or wrong. There were a whole lot of professionals working from home, white collar professionals. And it was it was hard to get them back into the office. Some firms have continued to allow work from home, you know, willy nilly as of right. We've taken a different approach. We think, you know, to do our best work, we need to be collaborating in person most of the time. We still have some flexibility on work from home in certain occasions. But where we've seen it, particularly at the very skilled end of our, our design profession, is for the, really for the first time ever, we're hiring people fully remote wherever we can find them in the country. So wow. we've, got, we've got team members in Pacific Northwest. We've got you know, team members in the Midwest or in the Northeast markets that 
they're not even within 300 miles of an office and, you know, are never expected to come into an office, you know, unless we're doing an event or something like that where they're encouraged to attend. And, but we're, for the first time, we have coworkers, you know, in far-flung reaches of the country simply because they have the skills that we need to fulfill our contractual obligations. And that's one way we've gotten creative. Our benefits packages have had to get better. It's become an arms race in terms of, you know, your whole benefits package, not just your base salary. And whether that's, you know, insurance policies, 401ks, deferred compensation, signing bonuses, retention, you know, guaranteed retention bonuses, things like that, that we've we've never had to do in 20 plus years of, of being in this industry. Feels like it's been techified a little bit, you know, <laughs> like, like these are West Coast, these are West Coast tech firms type, yeah. type employment contracts here <laughs> for a very traditional industry. So, you know, we've, we've definitely had to get creative, and, you know, offer, you've been in recruiting, so, you know, generally the scalp that a recruiter gets when they place someone is, you know, 20 to 25% of the first year's salary on day yeah. one. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not approaching that number, but at least half of that on, on referral bonuses. You know, if you as an employee get to bring someone into the firm. And so that's a win-win. The firm saves half and you as the employee gets, you know, 10 to 15% of your one salary three months or six months after the person's been here. That's, you know, a good example of the type of creativity. I mean, yeah, I can, I can you want to keep the money in-house and your own employees are the best source of referrals for new employees. and. You know, if you come out ahead, you know, as a company, you know, what's it to you that it goes to, you know, a a referral bonus versus a third party headhunter? Sure, I can definitely appreciate that. I heard that many times over the years. (laughs) And the employee referral tends to not be a sure thing, but it tends to have less complete misses than than using the third party headhunter. Because, you know, the existing employee doesn't want to bring in someone who can't cut it or who won't be a good fit. Well, I think they also have more insight into the culture and who's oh, yeah. culture fit or not, you know, and, and those components are very important. They make a big difference. They do. They do. Being in the office is a big part of the culture. When, when it, we were trying to recruit during the work from home days, it was even tougher. Someone could work here for six months and never have met their supervisor in person, much less get trained in person or, you know, sit around the water cooler and tell stories in the kitchen in person. And, and you're missing out on a whole lot. You know, the, the kids who graduated in 2020 and 2021, they got a, a unique experience starting their career by Zoom, you know, finishing their schooling by Zoom first and then, and then starting their professional career by Zoom. And, and fortunately, we've had them in the office for over a year now and ratchet them back up. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. We've taken a similar approach and have basically gone hybrid where we're in the office three times a week, you know, and still working remotely twice a week to keep that flexibility intact. From a recruiting standpoint, not offering that flexibility is almost a deal breaker to a lot of candidates. That's right. And so, you know, you're just simply almost strong-armed into doing it, whether you like it or not. But I do agree with you very much that in order to build a culture, you really do need to have people in the office, you know, for that level of connection, that level of collaboration. And there is a lot that is lost when you're not able to do that. And then that directly will impact, you know, being able to retain employees. 
So, you know, it's definitely, you know, a challenge that I can completely appreciate. But, you know, what about now talking about kind of shifting over to being able to source effectively buyers and renters now in this type of market? I know people are nervous. People are confused. They're a little scared. They're they're not sure, you know, kind of which way to go. People are kind of pausing on decision-making. So what are you all doing in order to try to address that? Trying to be, you know, faithful and good fiduciary consultants for our clients and, and you know, tell them the same things we're talking about here. You know, we we love it when our, our developer clients come into the office and we have converse. I have this conversation a dozen times a week that I'm having with you, you know, with a developer with skin in the game. And, you know, whether they've got a, a project already underway or they're trying to secure land, you know, typically they're talking to us while they're looking at, at raw land. And they may not, they may just have the location, location, location. They may have the site and not know what its highest and best use is, you know, or in most cases in, in central Texas, what the highest and best use they can convert it to or entitle it to. You know, if they want to know what the politics are at the, at the local jurisdiction, you know, in, in the case of the city of Austin, you can get away with, a, not away with, you get a lot of incentives for providing on-site affordable housing. You, for mm-hmm. example, you get a lot of incentives for providing vehicle charging stations and you know alternative infrastructure in that way. They're re- not that they're disincentivizing, but if you wanted to do a traditional, you know, early two thousands apartment building or or subdivision type project, you're not going to get development bonuses for that, whether it's density or units or height, and you know all the ordinances and all the political will specific to the city of Austin is is towards you know, affordable housing, green, quote unquote, green infrastructure, such as EV charging stations, but including, you know, water quality treatment and things like that. And, you know, on-site amenities and parkland and making that those amenities open to the public, not just the, the tenants or residents of the project. And so if you can start to check some of those boxes, then your proposal will be seen much better in the court of public opinion. And ultimately, you know, that will give the cover to the politicians to approve an increase in entitlement. So a big part of what we do is is working with developers and land use attorneys in order to come up with entitlement proposals that we we can then take to elected officials and hopefully get our answer or our vote count before we get to a public hearing. One of my key rules is I don't ever show up to a public hearing where we're going to be voted, a project's going to be voted on if I don't have the answer at a time that I know I'm going to get. You don't want to be debated on the dais. That's not a good situation to be in. Uh-huh. <laughs> it happens a lot. It happens a lot, even by some of the most professional developers around. Sometimes it's through sheer naivety, but sometimes it does get derailed, you know, in the public hearing. And you got you to gotta watch out for that. It's better to have a postponement than a no vote, is what I always tell my clients. So if it looks like it's going south, we're going to go for a postponement before there's a vote. And then regroup behind closed doors and try to fix it in that way. But it's really, you know, being a good steward and and they're the decision maker. You know, we're a four fee business. You know, we don't have upside or downside in the projects that we work on. You know, we get our rates, whether they're lump sum or hourly, no matter the outcome. So it's really our job to explain to them the trends we're seeing in the market. You know, what's being incentivized by the various jurisdictions and, and what's feasible for the project moving forward. And, you know, more than once someone's come in with a, a for rent apartment project that ended up as an office building or vice versa, or they wanted to do purely for rent and they ended up having to do mixed use because they could get, 
you know, unlimited floor to area ratio or unlimited unit count per acre, for example. Interesting. Uh, and I assume that those putting those incentives in place ultimately in turn makes it more attractive to potential buyers and or renters? Oh, yeah, it's a big gift. If the zoning, those incentives are typically tied to what what are known as zoning overlay districts on top of the base district. And it's a big gift to the landowners, underlying landowners. There's one particular neighborhood in Austin, for, for those of your listeners who are familiar with the area, Rainy Street, the Rainy Street neighborhood is right in, it's a pocket of downtown Austin, very hip, very cool. You wouldn't recognize it from 15 years ago. 15 years ago, it was low-slung, low-income, single-story bungalows, almost none of them over 1,000 square feet. I think the roads are 25 feet wide. You know, they were designed for small, single-family homes. And the city came through and, and rezoned those central business district at the same time putting in uh, development overlay to encourage vertical construction. You know, your 800-square-foot little home just became, you know, a downtown tower site. So it was a land rush a decade or more, eh, probably 15 years ago now. And you wouldn't even recognize the area. It's just for the city. It's one of those great success stories. You know, they've got more housing downtown. They've got a lot more tax base. And for the underlying landowners, you know, who sold out to the developers, they pick your number 3x, 4x, 10x the value of their land before that zoning came into place. So Zoning can can give for sure. Very interesting. I would say a lot of a lot of landowners, not necessarily homeowners, because there's a very protectionist part of single family zoning, nimbiest part of single family zoning. But zoning can also take away too, <laughs> depending on what the zoning district is. Sure, sure, definitely. Well, Will, this has been so interesting, but in the interest of time, because I'm sure that we can't keep the listeners on too long, you know, I appreciate you you sharing all of this. And if the listeners do want to get in touch with you, or maybe particularly have a project they'd like to have you consult on or get, you know, involved with, how can they contact you? The number one way is our website, WGINC.com, or you can email me, Will. Dot Schneer, a C-H-N-I-E-R at W-G-I-N-C.com. Perfect. I'm out there. You can find me. <laughs> we we can help you nationwide. We're doing projects all over the country right now. We're one of the exciting firms uh, or projects we're mentioning or we're working on, I'll just mention is the Brightline Virgin Train System in South Florida. So, hmm. you know, there's high-speed rail from Miami to Orlando and with stops in between and it's a very cool project. And I'd love to see something like that come to Central Texas. Texas could definitely would, use that. How cool would it be to start in Austin and, and have a dinner in Dallas and come back the same night, right? Without yeah. the drive or fly. Or go to a Mavericks game, you know, or a <laughs> Cowboys game. Or all those Dallas guys could come watch the Longhorns, you know, yeah. do great for three quarters before they lose. I'd love to have that happen in Texas. But not for now, we'll settle with it being awesome project in, in South Florida. So oh, very cool. Very cool. Well, before we officially wrap things up, we have arrived to what we call the lightning round questions, which is just a handful of questions that I ask every guest at the end of each episode. So are you ready? Ooh la la, let's go. All right. So <laughs> Will, what is a hobby that you actually have? Well, trying to be a good dad and good husband is number one, but that frequently with my son, my five-year-old son has manifested into 
camping out in the hill country and and yeah, he would say we go out there and have a fire and eat s'mores, but hopefully, hopefully it's more than that. So camping and being out in nature, I guess I could say running Airbnbs too. I've got a couple of Airbnbs as personal investment. So that that's fun on the side. Scratch yeah. the real estate itch. <laughs> well, very cool. Very cool. Now you see, so you have to be careful what you give away sometimes because it can make the next question more difficult. So the next question is, what is one thing about you that most people don't know that you're okay to share for us? I grew up in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. So wow. I, my dad worked for 3M, Fortune 100 company and Ended up moving the family over there when I was a teenager. So I graduated from the American School of Dubai. <laughs> totally unrealistic experience for an American teenage kid to live over there. You know, so what I, a great one to have. That's really yeah. neat. And then to go to the cornfields of Indiana and <laughs> in a rural college atmosphere, was that was the rude awakening more than going from Minneapolis to Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. That's definitely a shift. Okay, good. What about as far as books? Is there a book that you're currently reading or have read in the past that you would highly recommend someone check out? I have historically been a voracious reader. Since my son was born five years ago, I have not been because I don't have the evenings free. Typically, I'm, I'm tending to him or hanging out with him. You know, one of my all-time favorites was Never Eat Alone, you know, and the author is Keith Ferrazzi. I think it's Keith Ferrazzi. And I've mentioned it on a few other podcasts, but, you know, so much of, of success in business is information gathering, information sharing, helping other people, and everyone's got to eat and you got to expand your network. You know, for people who came out of school or tried to get into sales during the COVID pandemic, I don't know how they did it, not being able to leave the house because so much of inspiring confidence or gaining confidence or helping people is doing it in person and, and being personable and, you know, demonstrating to them that you're qualified and capable of, of dealing with these issues or, you know, these challenges in our industry, in our case development. So, you know, Never Eat Alone was a great book and I probably read it a decade ago and really changed my perspective on, you know, the, the greatest currency trying to build a business and run a business is information, not dollars. You can turn the information into dollars if you know what you're doing, but you got to have the information. Yeah, definitely. It's a very good book. I've also read it. I uh, definitely really enjoyed it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Good one. All right. Now, last but not least, what is your advice for our listeners as far as building an extraordinary life? Take a good inventory of what matters most to you. I know for certain when I started Big Red Dog in 2009, it was very selfish, you know, focused on what I wanted. I wasn't married at the time. And very quickly, not very quickly, but over the course of five to seven years, you know, it, it became clear to me that the most important thing to me was my wife and my kids and my marriage. And, you know, I didn't want to end up as a 60-year-old, you know, twice-divorced guy whose kids didn't have a relationship with them, but I had a lot of money and a good business. You know, that's not where I wanted to end up. But I guess as an entrepreneur starting a business, you're not done till you successfully exit the business for a profit, right? Just having the business doesn't mean you've succeeded. And so I, you know, I reached a point about 37 years old where the firm was worth 20 million plus dollars and decided that, you know, that was enough for me at the time. And you know, turned out I've sold right into the biggest asset bubble in the history of our country. So that's gone up some, but, you know, I, to be an almost 38 year old guy with college paid for and, you know, 
day-to-day living expenses paid for and some extra on the side, you know, that, that was enough for me. And, and it was the best, best decision I made. I'm proud of being a good husband and a good father and, and every day trying to be less selfish and, and more about them. And, and here at the office, helping other people live their dream. You know, I've, I've led my dream. I don't have that ambition anymore. You know, I might get it back, but... <laughs> Yeah, 40,000 40, hours of being a CEO is enough for now. <laughs> I don't need for my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's great advice. Definitely great advice. All right. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. And for you listeners, thank you as well. Please don't forget to like and rate and review our show and let us know what you'd like to hear more of. If you have any interest in investing passively with Blue Lake, please feel free to visit our website, bluelake-capital.com. And last but not least, in the words of Ellie, keep being bold, keep moving forward and go build your own extraordinary life. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.